listening to the House of India. Hey, welcome to another episode of the House of Indy. My name is Joey Galvez, and I'm here with another great creator. This time we have Richard Davis in the studio. Rich, how's it going, man? Hey, what's up, Joey? We haven't been formally introduced, but uh, we, we've been friends online like everybody else these last few years. Yeah. Uh, but, man, how's it even going? That's going great, man. Um, you know, we finally got some uh, warm weather here in Tennessee. Yeah. Um, I'm super happy with that. I'm so over winter oh man you will, i'm out in arizona so uh bring me some of the winter f- uh, weather uh, dude, you can have it all <laughs> well, I, I went to phoenix last year uh-huh. and man i swear i i can move there i love the weather <laughs> let's like, hey listen let's i say i say we swap houses man because i'm all about that <laughs> hey you know what you, you see what you say when it's august and the humidity is like 75 percent okay you know yeah. and then you, you tell me if you want to live here but like, i swear <laughs> man 110 degrees in phoenix felt like it felt like 65 and awesome here I mean, I was I was an avid man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, humidity, yes. Yeah, I know it's bad. It it is. I I went to Florida uh, uh in in the summertime. Well, it was like it was like in that transitional time. You know, that's when it's the roughest times, right? So oh, yeah. so uh, I went out there and I've got really bad asthma. Oh man, it was so thick and so rough. I just I couldn't. So oh. I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, you're like I. Uh, I'll go visit yep. the the South. There, you know? there you go. I mean, there's a lot of great things about the South, but humidity ain't one of them. <laughs> I, be, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about your work, man, because you've been working with SourcePoint Press on uh, mm-hmm. Cult of Dracula, and mm-hmm. I was introduced to this uh, not through SourcePoint Press, not through knowing uh, knowing a little bit about you, but through my buddy Dave Lentz. He he worked with you guys a little bit yeah. on that. Um, yeah, Dave's my letterer, man. He's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, so he's he's a really good buddy of mine. He helped me out with some of the logo work for my for some of my podcasts and and uh, good stuff like that. But man, and and he was telling me about this stuff, and I was talking to him. He's like, "Man, I got something going on right now. I can't talk to you about it, but you're gonna love it." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is awesome! Yes, give me more." So let's talk a little bit about Cult of Dracula. Yeah. So uh, Cult of Dracula was my first comic, uh, six issues long. The trade paperback's out now. Uh, you can get it in uh, comic book stores all over the country, and uh, it's in Target. It's on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Uh, so pick it up. It's, um, it's a modern reimagining of Stoker's original story set within a Manson family-inspired cult. Yeah. Yeah, then and it's absolutely amazing, fantastically gruesome. You guys are gonna, if you, if you guys love this stuff, you're gonna be all about it. <laughs> it is. Um, we do. We some people have called it gore porn, and I I totally agree with that. You know, I'm a horror guy. I'm I'm a huge horror fan. If if I had if I have my choice between 15 different genres of movie, I'm gonna gravitate to horror every single time. And you know, I grew up loving those, um, you know, those late 70s, early 80s uh, flasher films. You know, Tom Savini is a god, in my opinion. And, um, you know, and uh, later on, Eli Roth and the Splat Pack, you know, I love love the stuff they do. Um, so, yeah, we, we uh, Cult of Dracula and now Rise of Dracula, which is my new book. It's out in stores now. Issue two just came out. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's a, it's kind of a love letter to horror fans written by a horror fan. 
Um, we, we blend several different genres of horror into cult and rise. Cult is more of a Southern Gothic uh, horror, Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre style. Um, and rise is more of a dystopian near future kind of John Carpenter um, inspired. Um, and then when we get to Reign of Dracula, which is volume three, it, it's full on George Miller post-apocalyptic. The world is just fucked. <laughs> and that's, that's, <laughs> that's awesome, man. So how much how much of uh, of where you live, where you set up shop, how much of that is inspired into in your books, man? All of it. All of it. You know, um, I am a very proud Tennessean. Rocky Top will always be home sweet home to me. And um, I do everything I can to work in um, uh, work in that, that culture that we have here. You know, I, uh, I had a I had a professor in college when I, and I was young and cocky and, you know, thought I knew everything in the world. And he um, he used uh, he used the, the line, um, you know, write what you know. And I completely misinterpreted that as a, you know, as a 17, 18 year old kid in college. And I thought, well, so what? I can't tell stories unless, you know, I can't write a vampire story because I'm not a vampire. And now that I'm older, you know, I look back and I realize, okay, I get it now. And I was dumb as a brick for not getting it back then. You know, your your life, your upbringing, your experience, when you write from from that it comes off as more believable because you're more confident with it. You have a deeper understanding of it. And uh, so, yeah, I tried to work, um, you know, like in Cult of Dracula, the church that we begin with. I mean, I drove by that same church a million different times going down a million different country roads. Um, you know, I the people, the, the way they approach things, the culture, how deeply seated religion is into the culture. You know, that's that's how I grew up, man. You know, and I kind of forgot that when I moved away, I moved to the beach and, uh, you know, it was a little more liberal, a little more uh, laid back. People went to church, but, you know, church. But when they were done, they came home, they had dinner and watched football, you know. But uh, here in the deep south, you know, it's like you go to church on Sunday morning, you go to church on Sunday evening and you're back on Wednesday and then you're doing like, I mean, you're defined by where you go to church. And, um, you know, it's such a pervasive part of your, uh, your life, um, here in the South. So, you know, um, I wanted to kind of, kind of include that into, um, into Cult of Dracula as well. So you get to look at that, that cult mentality and kind of the perversion of that, um, that religious fervor, you know, kind of the dark side of it. So, um, so yeah, it, it was really fun to write and it, you know, I throw in a reference to, uh, you know, to Tennessee any any way that I possibly can. I mean, like you'll see there's a scene where Mina is wearing a, a University of Tennessee uh, sweatshirt while she's studying. You know, so little things like that. And then big things like we set an entire scene on Copperhead Road, which is the bootlegging road between Johnson City and um, uh, and Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, part of it's Copperhead Road, other parts Thunder Road. Yeah. Yeah. You got to put those little bits in there. And, and uh, man, it's it's so cool because because you feel like like when you are creating something, you have to put a little bit uh, a piece of your home in it. And, yeah. and 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 what an amazing backdrop. Listen, I, I've, I've never been to Tennessee, but I've, you know, through through osmosis, we know a little bit about the South. Right. And and sure. and, and, and it's gorgeous. Right. There's such a gorgeous mm-hmm. thing. But they're all there's always the other 
other side of gorgeous <laughs> and and yep. and that's the mystery and that's the one right. thing and, and i love that you have this backdrop and you're and you're embracing that mystery of that backside of gorgeous <laughs> it's like you know there's um i think one of the um, one of the blurbs that we put in previews um was you know in the south everyone knows there are certain roads you don't go down oh yeah both literally and figuratively <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's true. There, there, there are places, you know, backwoods way back in the sticks and here in East Tennessee that be, I wouldn't go down those roads. There's no way. <laughs> and, and um, you know, there's some there's some old uh, old coal mining roads and. Oh man, it, it gets it's scary back there. <laughs> that that's awesome, man! And what amazing thing! So let's talk a little bit about about uh, uh, how you got into comic books, man. Because I know uh, a little bit about 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 how you you, uh, you own a shop, right? Mm-hmm. So, I do. Yeah, I own a shop in Knoxville uh, called Nirvana Comics, and um, you know I, I've taken a kind of a long and winding road to get here. Um, you know, I've uh, I worked for newspapers, I worked in radio, mm-hmm. I worked film um i owned a theater for uh, for many years uh worked for two presidential campaigns wow um i own a comic book store um and you know i um i finally uh finally took the leap and uh, wrote a comic and uh Thankfully, it did pretty well, so I think they're going to let me keep doing it for a while. <laughs> yeah, man, it's something's something right is happening. Yeah, man, blown away. Yeah. So let's let's talk about. So there there's a difference to the different face to comic books now, right? But two three years ago, comic shops were different. They were mm-hmm. not striving as much we made a shift and now everybody's doing different we have online we have uh whatnot sales we have all kinds of these different things uh you have so many different avenues so much more and then the more you get out there and promote yourself and market your 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 work uh, it just it just blows up all the other aspects of your life so i completely understand what it, it comic shops as long as you are putting in the work and putting in the hustle there's you're gonna strive yeah and you have to um you know you're right the comic book shop uh it's changed like when i was a kid you know a comic book shop could be like a dingy little basement store (laughs) in a strip mall with you know just wall-to-wall long boxes and you know those those stores they're dinosaurs now man they're gone they're dying and you know it you you have to have a business acumen to uh, run a comic book store and you have to be able to separate your fandom from, uh, from your business. Like I was having a conversation, Teeny Howard, uh, who's writing Catwoman for DC right now. She actually used to work for me at my store and uh, she and I had a long conversation. She was, Teeny is one of those people who just wants to know everything about the industry and wants to learn possible things she can. So we were talking about, you know, how I put in orders. This is many years ago. Um, and, you know, I had to explain to her that, you know, sometimes the books that you think are cool aren't going to be the books that are profitable. And, um, you know, it took her a long time to understand that. But once she did, she was like, oh, I get it now. You know, so a lot a lot of the stores, unfortunately, that are that are suffering right now are the ones that are owned by people who are just hardcore fanboys. And they have the love and the passion for comics, but they don't understand how to make money off of yeah, and, I think uh, I think that's perfect. You have to. I love that. You have to have the skin, I guess, mm-hmm. to be in that game, right? Because yep. if you if you don't have the business acumen, there's nothing wrong with just being a badass super collector. <laughs> you know, you can have you can have your whole house filled with wall to wall comics, 
but don't lose your life savings because you think you can open up a comic book store and you have no business training. I mean, go to business school, go to community college at minimum, get yourself some, learn how business works before you take the leap. There's no reason you can't open your own business, but if you just jump into it and think, oh, I love comics, so that means I can make money off of it, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. That was the one rule my wife Amber and I had when, well, we had two rules. Um, one was if when we decided to open a shop, she said, if we open a comic book store, we've got to do it differently, you know, because I had a great experience growing up in comic book stores. I mean, I'm a, I'm a straight white male. I was always welcome at every comic book store I ever went to. My wife, Amber, who actually uh, knew more about comics than I did, she had a totally different experience. You know, being a woman, she was always, you know, either not welcomed or kind of looked at or ogled, you know. And so she said, if we're going to open up a comic book store, we've got to do it differently. We've got to make it accessible and welcoming to women and everybody. And that's where the industry is going now. But the second rule that we had was, if we're going to open up a comic book store, every book that comes through in every collection, it's for sale. We don't take anything home. You know, we're not putting anything in our personal collection. It goes to the shop. We sell it because if you don't have that discipline and that rule, what's going to happen is you're going to keep all the cool stuff for yourself and your store hasn't got anything to sell and nobody's going to come see you. And there, so, there you go. There you go. You, you, I mean, you can always have your personal collection. Just don't. It, yeah, that is the one thing that I know. I, I have a handful of friends. Never get high on your own supply. There you go. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> I was not going to go there. But but yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Don't get high on your own supply. Listen, I got a handful of friends who are comic shop owners, and that's exactly the same thing they say. They say, listen, everything that comes through that door, whether it's a 181 or whatever it is, it's going to get sold. I want it in my in my freaking collection. Don't it, every every geek out there wants that in their collection right they will freaking yep. move mountains to get it but yep. you know you gotta flip it if it's my in your whole, shop my whole life i wanted a, a fantastic four or five i wanted that first doctor Doom. and for whatever reason my every show i went to that book always eluded me i couldn't find it and then one day a dude brought it into my shop as part he had a big fantastic four collection that one was in there it was a tgc grade it's like a 4.0 and I bought it and I called Amber up and I was like, I am so <laughs> tempted to break our rule right now. I really want this book. And Amber was a hard ass. I mean, she was like, <laughs> we can't do that. And I, you know, I kept on and I pouted and I, you know, I kind of threw a little tantrum about it. And she said, okay, put it on the shelf for a week, put it in the case for a week. If it doesn't sell, you can take it home. And, you know, we were both thinking, you know, it's an expensive book. It's not going to sell in a week. You know, and I was like, all right, I'm excited. I made that deal with her. I put it out and I swear, hand to God, I put it out in my case. 20 minutes later, a guy walks through the door and says, is that a first Dr. Doom? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what do you want for it? I'm like, so I threw my crazy price out. Like, you know, it was like GPA plus like 20%. Yeah. Because I didn't want to sell it. <laughs> I'd be damned if he didn't buy that book. So I owned it for 20 minutes and then it was gone. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and you got your insane price. <laughs> I did. I, 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 there was no way this guy was going to pay oh that. Oh, my I mean, gosh. 
I overpriced it on purpose so badly. There's no way he's going to buy it. And he just whipped out the Amex and took it home. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> I've never owned another one. I've so, never owned another Fantastic oh, man. Well, somebody that day must have paid their, their credit card bill. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, yes, I paid it off. Now it's time to get something else. He's like, boom. <laughs> you, you, you asked me on the wrong day, buddy. Yep. <laughs> All right, man. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about your creative process. All right, we are back from the break. And I'm still here with Richard Davis. I'm going to call you Sir Richard Davis. I don't know why. It just feels right. <laughs> I've been called better. I've been called worse. <laughs> so, Ridge, let's talk a little bit about your uh, about your creative process here. Um, I know you you're a jack of all trades. You had you've had almost all kinds of crazy cool jobs in the day. But man, I want to know what it takes uh, when it when it comes to Richard Davis putting the pen to the paper. Yeah. So, um, I am I'm what you call a, a gardener. There, there's, uh, there's a school of thought where there are essentially two types of writers. There's architects and there's gardeners. Architects are the, the type of people who lay out very detailed, very specific A to B to C plot lines, and then they, they fill their characters in to progress through those. Gardeners are more uh, character driven. Um, you know, where do the characters want to go? Where do the characters want to take this story? So that's more uh, that's more my style. Like I write a very basic outline for how I want an issue to go. You know, and I want you know you follow the same you know the five point arc and all that. Um, you know, that's been around since the Greeks, um, and it works. So you know, you write that basic outline. But then sometimes, you know, one of my characters is like taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, I want to go over here. Let's do this for a minute. You know, I know I'm supposed to get here, but I want to go here. So, um, you know, I tend to I have conversations with my characters. Like I sit there in my office as I'm writing and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm saying their dialogue out loud and I'm answering it. So, uh, you know, I I think I, I, I draw a lot from my theater background because, you know, that's a common practice you know, in rehearsal. Um, so I think that having a, having a theatrical and a film background, I think helps me, um, to create, uh, my characters. I, you know, the books have been widely praised for the depth of character and the, uh, the quippiness of the dialogue. And I'm very proud of that. Um, you know, and I'm very happy that readers have enjoyed it that way. So, you know, I think that aspect of, um, of my background really, really helps me in that. Sometimes my plots meander and there are some, there are some subplots that kind of fizzle out. Um, you know, that's one of the downfalls to, to being a gardener, but you know, the, the flip side is sometimes the architect, you know, they have a, their, their endings always deliver because everything's been building to this crescendo, but sometimes their characters feel kind of stilted and you're like, I don't think that character would have done that. You know, um, so, uh, you know, there, there's pluses and minus pros and cons to being a gardener or an architect. I just tend to lean more toward uh, the gardener side. So so that then that means that you don't do too much of like the like writing extensive character Bibles on each each and every one of your characters in the in the books then. Right. No, man, because they're um, uh, I do an obscene amount of research about the world I'm building and the concepts like. As far as like I spent no kidding, you know, close to 100 hours listening to interviews with Charles Manson um, oh, wow. because I, 
I wanted Renfield to have that Manson vibe mm-hmm. and that rhythm. Manson had a music to the way he spoke and he wanted to be a musician. So it came through in the way when he talked to people. And, you know, I studied dozens and dozens of serial killers and cult leaders. And, you know, I, I'm definitely on an FBI watch list now. Uh, you know, but um, and I, I researched vampire mythology from all over the world and folklore. I mean, you know, I, I really was impressed by uh, Philippine um, vampire mythology with the Aswang and the Mandrugo, um, and uh, you know, just uh, how it's different from the Western idea of the vampire. Um, so I wanted all of that to inform the world I was building. But as far as the characters go. They kind of introduced themselves to me as, you know, as uh, as I wrote the story. I mean, I knew who they were. Um, you know, I knew where they I knew who they were at this point in time when they were walking into this book. But, you know, it took you know, they kind of they told me who they were and what their backstory was as the story went along. And I know that that sounds insane to anybody who, who doesn't write. And it probably sounds insane to a lot of people who do write. But, um, you know, it, that's just what works for me. You know, um, I treat my characters like they're like they're real people. And, um, you know, we have conversations. We get to know each other. So have you always done it this way or was there always those? Was there a way that didn't work that you had to kind of sift through to get to some to this point of the, of being comfortable? Yeah, I, um, you know, going going through school, um, you know, uh, creative writing classes, theater classes, things like that. They, you know, they teach you the different methods. And so sometimes you have to adhere to those, you know, like the, you know, the professor will tell you, you have to write it this way. And, you know, the, they wanted those, you know, those architect detailed uh, plot lines and outlines, things like that. And I tried it. Um, it doesn't really work for me because it always feels very forced. Um, and um, I don't know, it just, it's, it just doesn't, doesn't work well for me. You know, because I get um, even if I write a very detailed outline, um, I don't want to stick to it because I'll be writing and I'll be like, oh, wow, I w- this this is really cool. Let's do this here instead of that. And um, so sometimes that that can cause some continuity issues, um, you know, if you, uh, if you if you're not devoted to your outline. So, um, yeah, it just that just part never really worked for me. Yeah, that's 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 good. Good good advice. Uh, earlier, you talked a little bit about how how, uh, you know, collecting uh, versus, you know, uh, uh, you know, a flipper or a buyer and stuff like that. You are part of a show on Netflix called Swap Shop, right? Yeah, I am. Let's, let's talk yep. a little bit about that, man, because listen, this is one of those shows that I love. Like it's it's like it's like Storage Wars and Pickers made a baby. <laughs> you know, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, throw a little bit of the Amazing Race and, um, and yeah. comic book men in there. There you and, go. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had uh, we had fun. Uh, season two, by the way, starts uh, next week on Netflix, so you'll be able to check it out there. And we're in negotiations for a possible season three, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, you know, it was something we had an opportunity to do. Um, they were uh, the producers were initially pitching the show to History Channel, so they had kind of a of an American Pickers demo in mind. They were you know, older white guys, you know, people who watch History Channel. Um, and um, history, for whatever reason, passed on the show, um, but Netflix wanted it. And uh, Netflix caters to a younger demo, a more diverse demo. And uh, so they were looking around East Tennessee. They want, they decided they want to do comic books. They wanted kind of a young, uh, innovative hip store. And um, so they called us up and asked us if we wanted to audition for it. And we were like, sure. 
and it was COVID. So everything was done essentially like Zoom. Um, but, uh, you know, we came in, we taped and they told us, you know, it's going to be a couple of weeks before they get they get back to you, whether they like you or not. And I swear we left. I left my store. I had not walked from my front door to my car before my phone was blowing up. It was the producer saying they love you. Can you come back and do a second screen test tomorrow? Um, and so we did. And uh, they they hired us right there on the spot um, to do it. So um, it was this really cool experience that we got to do, man. Um, but what I what I loved about the show, and I think this comes across when you watch it, everything's real. Um, like every place that we went, uh, you know, there was nothing set up. They didn't plant books. Um, you know, some we went to several places where we didn't find anything. Um, and then, you know, the ones that we did, we're seeing it for the first time. We're finding it right there on camera. And everything that we bought, we bought everything we didn't buy. You know, it was a real negotiation, a real deal with these people. Um, and that that was cool. And that was um, I mean, there's a little bit of a reality element to it, like the little cutaways. You know, the producers will tell you that, you know, uh, Chris and Abby were our field producers and they would um, you know, they say, OK, so when you were looking and talking to this guy, you said this. I need you to repeat that line during the cutaway. So there's that element of it. There's a little bit of a scripted element to it. But as far as the the buying and the picking, that's totally real. That's all us. Um, and I brought all of that stuff back to my store and sold all of it. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I, I completely understand the whole aspect of, you know, hey, re say this line again. Sometimes I wish I can go back and be like, hey, let's take it back. Mm -hmm. Can you say it that way? Because <laughs> yeah. when you're editing and cutting things together, it helps a whole lot if you can get them to say it the same way, same kind of energy, and then go mm -hmm. back with it. So you can overlap and all these different technical things that people don't know about when you when you when you guys are listening to this at the end user. <laughs> yep. Right, yeah, that's exactly how it goes, you know. Right. And uh, it was great. It was a really, really great experience. We worked with an amazing crew um, and the rest of the cast members, the ones we got to work with. They were so funny. Um, and it, it really shows it, it's a good show. Um, and I'm not a reality TV guy. I, I don't watch that stuff. very. I'm, I'm more of a documentary type dude. Um, you know, so, uh, but I, I really, I enjoy watching Swap Shop. It's, it's, it's fun. And, and the episodes I'm not, I don't watch the episodes I'm in because <laughs> that's weird. Um, but I watch all the other episodes and they're fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I always wonder about that. Cause I, my wife says, why are you doing like, I, I'll go back and I'll like go watch and make sure that I, that everything's good on my streams. <laughs> And she's, she's, I'm like, I'm not watching myself. I'm just making sure that everything's good. Yeah, you're making sure everything went well. Everything went well. And because I've got, we got people who are on there that want to be there for a reason. So I got to make right. sure they're good. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, hanging out with me right here on the House of Indy. Uh, can you please let everybody know where they can find you and when they can find these books, all that good stuff, man? Yeah, man. Um, So the books, um, go to your local comic book store, uh, Cult of Dracula, you'll probably have to scoop it up in trade paperback. Uh, the single issues are sold out everywhere. Um, speculators really hopped on it because uh, you have a television show in development um, for Cult of Dracula through Sure Pictures. Um, so spec is pretty hot on it. Um, so, But the trade paperback, uh, go to your local comic book store first. I cannot encourage you enough to support your local comic book store because those LCSs, they are the backbone of this industry. And I I can 100% tell you, I would not be here 
if I didn't have the support of some incredible retailers who were in on this and believed in me when they had absolutely no reason to. And if we didn't have local comic book shops, everything would be dominated by um, by two big publishers and everything would be packaged and boring and feature a bat dude or a spider guy. Um, and that, that would be the comic book industry. So your local comic book shop, please support them. Buy it there first. You can't find it there. Go to you know. Go to another retailer. Go to go to Target. Go to Barnes and Noble. Whatever Amazon. Um, and then Rise of Dracula issues one and two are out. Uh, two came out this week. Um, you can find it um, in comic book stores all over the world. Um, it's uh, sales of uh, Rise of Dracula have exceeded Cult. Wow. A lot of ways. So, wow. So yeah, it's a it's a really good book. Um, it's getting very strong critical reviews, and there, there's some good heat on it, um, especially now that number two's out because. I wanted. I originally intended. I wanted what became issues one and two. I wanted them to be one sized issue, um, and just because of uh, COVID happening and the supply chain problems, the cost of paper was just too expensive to do a, a, a jumbo. So we broke it up into two parts, and it, it works that way. I really, I do, I do love it. Um, but I think it reads better if you have issue one and two kind of read straight through. Um, but yeah, uh, so Rise of Dracula is in stores now. Cult, um, if you can find them, scoop them up. If not, pick up the trade paperback. Awesome. Fantastic. Again, I appreciate you hanging out with me right here on the House of Indie and exclusive to the Geek Collective. We'll see you guys next time. Hey.